Well, hello there again, my renowned, much-loved and much-tweeted-about nasty-pasty listeners. Andy Roberts here, on time for once. Thank you so much, as ever, for tuning in, despite my leaden arse fumbling the whole thing as of late. But if you're hearing this now, this is in fact the true episode this week, as the other one from last week on Backward Slashers was delayed until today. Since getting a new job, my schedule has changed so rapidly that I've struggled to adjust, really. And in the future, me and my partner are soon becoming foster parents, so we're also going through a whole menagerie of social worker visits and assessments at the moment. Quite frankly, I'm surprised I'm able to cope, but enough of that nonsense. It's all about you, listeners, so I'm determined to bring you the juiciest, bloodiest content that I've been promising you. Just in case you've forgotten about what I do here, considering I've been so flagrantly haphazard, or if heaven forbid you're a new listener, this is a podcast. Not just any old podcast, this one talks weekly about horror films, and not just any old horror films. Okay, I'll cut out the any old, and I'll just cut to the chase. Once upon a time, a terrible despot once banned a collection of bloody horror films on a big island, causing the police to jail or fine anyone in possession of the horrendous artefacts. As a result, the people of the island were restricted for decades about what they could and couldn't watch, until future generations relaxed and allowed us the freedom that they do today. End of story. Except substitute Once Upon a Time with the 80s, The Terrible Despot with The Government, Conservatives and Newspapers, and The Big Island with Britain. It was certainly no fairy tale when it happened in reality, as people's families and livelihoods were ruined, the general public were treated with kid gloves by the censors for years, and most of all, the government had actually wrongly implemented the law anyway, meaning they had no basis in law to prosecute anybody. To highlight the iniquitous behaviour of those who govern, I started this podcast many a moon ago to explore some of those films that weren't listed on the nasties list, as they've been done by other experts on the internet. Like Christopher Brown, or Orange underscore Monkey on Twitter, there's Tom Elliott and Chris Clayton of The Strange and Deadly Show, who were really the real inspiration behind me getting into podcasting in the first place. You can find them as Grindhouse Tom and The Chris Clayton, and they're a fab bunch of guys. There's also the other video nasty or horror enthusiasts that keep me going as well, like Mr. Gorblimey of Trilogy of Terror podcast, the radiant Amanda Reyes from Made for TV Mayhem, the Screaming Queens guys like Johnny Larkin, Jonathan Butler, Stephen Moore, and the constantly adventuring Martin Fennerty. There's such a great support network on Twitter and Facebook for horror fans, and I'm sorry that I can't name absolutely everybody, that I thought I can actually leave the actual video nasties as they're quite a popular subject today. Instead, Nasty Pasty focuses on non-nasty films, but subjects them to the same scrutiny as the DPP's most reviled, analysing them for how violent or sexual they are, looking if the film had a release in the UK at the time of the furore, and trying to figure out why the film was not picked upon by the police as a result. Now this week is our final Giallo week, and yes folks, the show is coming to an end shortly with only seven episodes until the end. In typical fashion lately, I ended up watching the completely wrong Jallo film this week, but it's quite fortuitous as I now have a more defined theme. It was meant to be middle-tiered Jallo, but it's now Reptile Gialli, Italian murder mysteries with a reptile in the title of the work. I was meant to be covering 1971's Black Belly of the Tarantula, but I will now, as an apology, do this as a special bonus sometime next week. Today's films are also from 1971, however, Lucio Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin, and Ricardo Freda's Iguana with the Tongue of Fire. 
As a lot of you will already know about giallo films already, we'll skip the patronising history lesson and cut straight to the throat with Lucio Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin. A young woman called Carol is on a train, struggling to find a carriage and finding them all locked. As she goes down the train, the carriages become bleak hallways where countless naked people are engaging in orgiastic behaviour before she tumbles into a darkened room of red velvet where a beautiful woman seduces her. Waking up from the bizarre dream, Carol writes about the dream in her journal after talking to her stepdaughter, Joan, and goes to her therapist about the dreams, revealing that the woman in her dream is her neighbour, Julia, who simultaneously entrances and repulses her due to her habit of throwing lavish drug fueled orgies. After hosting her own quiet dinner party with her father, Edmund, and her husband, Frank, Carol becomes despondent again when another of Julie's parties is going on. At work, Edmund receives a call from an anonymous woman and asks his son-in-law if he is faithful to Carol, based upon the phone call. Frank denies this, but after work he travels to another woman's house, his secretary Deborah, and is intimate with her. Carol, meanwhile, has another dream involving witnessing several horribly aged men at a dinner table, a young woman disemboweling herself and holding her entrails, before the usual encounter with Julia, which this time ends in Carol stabbing her to death with a knife as a devilish man and woman look on with white eyes. In the waking world, Carol sees her therapist again, who explains that the dream was liberating and in some way a catharsis from Carol's feelings towards Julia. It is then revealed that Julia has in reality been murdered, with the police descending onto Carol's block of flats. Inspector Corvin arrives at Carol's apartment to question the family, causing Carol to worry when the details of the crime match her vivid dream. She also tries to locate her fur coat and panics when it seems to be missing, becoming very tense at dinner. 
This only increases when a neighbour, Mrs Gordon, describes that the body was stabbed three times with a paper knife, exactly as it was in her dream. When she fails to find her paper knife, she implores Frank to comfort her, and the pair visit the crime scene next door, where Carol sees the scene for herself, including the missing fur coat, the paper knife, and the same balcony that the two white-eyed hippies were on, causing her to faint. While Frank discusses with Edmund the absurdity of Carol's guilt, the police are surprised when a hippie confesses to the murder, only for his supposed guilt to fall apart after some brief questions. While out shopping a few days later, Carol spots the hippie couple from her dream and follows them, intending to ask them if they recognise her. As they go into a hippie den, Joan offers to ask the question for her due to the place being quite crowded, but the couple deny knowing Carol at all. The police deduce that Julia's murderer was from within the building itself, and after a clever bit of fingerprint gathering using a decoy photo, they match Carol's fingerprints with those on the paper knife, leading to her arrest. However, the police begin to doubt the evidence when they discover that Carol was in therapy for her dreams, in which Julia's murder is described in the context of a dream, offered by her therapist as signs of a dissociative identity disorder. While Carol is hospitalised in an institution awaiting her trial, Frank continues his affair with Deborah and also expresses a belief in his wife's innocence. When Carol reclines in the garden of the institution one day, she notices the male hippie watching from afar and flees in a panic. Chased inside by the man, Carol struggles to find an unlocked room to hide in, but eventually finds an empty surgery where she discovers a gruesome sight of four dogs strung up with medical apparatus, vivisected whilst alive with their innards and vital organs still beating. She faints, leading the doctors to discount her encounters as pure hallucinations. Edmund discovers that Frank is having an affair and reveals that the mystery caller was in fact Julia. Hypothesising that Julia was blackmailing Frank due to having knowledge of his affair, Frank bites back, suggesting that she may have been hypnotised using her dreams. Edmund, however, finishes his theory by revealing Carol's dream diary, which anyone could have read, including Frank himself. The theory is enough to get Carol out of custody on bail, where she's taken to a country riding plot to relax. She soon encounters the female hippie, who invites her to a church in order to discuss Julia's death. But arriving there, Carol is stalked by a knife-wielding loony in a motorcycle helmet and chased to the attic, where she climbs behind the organ. Seeming to hide successfully, she inadvertently sets the organ off, attracting the pursuer all over again. After attracting a cluster of bats, the killer is able to zone in on Carol's position, revealing it to be the male hippie, who brutally slashes her arm open. Now injured and wandering the rooftop, Carol is saved when a policeman fires on her attacker, causing him to flee. Somewhere else in town, Joan meets with the female hippie, called Jenny, who tells her something about Carol. The next day, Joan is found dead with her throat slashed in a park, her last action to have met up with the hippie guy, Hubert, who is then arrested subsequently. After he confesses to Joan's killing to prevent his and Jenny's presence being proven on the night of Julia's death, he refuses to accept responsibility for Julia's demise, instead revealing that she was killed by the person she was blackmailing. He and Jenny also reveal that they both witnessed a lizard in a woman's skin on that fateful night, with both of them high on LSD at the time. Inspector Corbin deduces that if they were present on that night, the killer could not have been able to kill Julia after Carol had written her dream diary entry, confusing the issue even further. Shortly afterwards, Edmund commits suicide, leaving behind a note that confesses to murdering Julia. 
Several weeks later, Carol visits her father's grave and is accompanied by Corvin. After she wonders why her father did such a thing, Corvin jolts her memory about the telephone call that Edmund received, which she admits to knowing about. Corvin, however, is insistent that nobody else knew about that call, revealing that she heard it from Julia herself, having participated in a lesbian relationship with her for a long time. Panicking that Julia was going to reveal the truth after she called Edmund to hint at it, Carol did stab her to death knowingly, but believing her to be alone, she was frightened when she notices the hippies watching her. Not knowing that they were under the influence of acid, Carol decided to weave her dreams into the narrative and explained it to her therapist to give her a mental defence if she was identified later. As Corvin finishes his theory, Carol is unable to defend her actions any longer and she's led into a police car. What about the neighbours? Oh, Miss Dura never spoke to any of them. In fact, according to the charm, they all tried to, to avoid her like the plague. The neighbours, Brandon, talk to every bloody one of them. But do it nicely. There's a woman in one of the flats who was Edmund Brighton's daughter. Right, sir. Did you know this, Dura? I said, did you know Julia Dura? We certainly didn't know her. Excuse me, but I don't think we'll be able to to give you any help in this murder. Murder? I didn't say that it was murder. What makes you think that it was? Oh, come on, Sergeant. The whole house is crawling with policemen. Murder squad, scientific squad, drug squad, and all the rest. Don't tell me there's all this carry-on when someone slips on a banana skin and happens to split their skull. There are times, however, when we have to be sure that somebody didn't um, leave the skin there on purpose. In any case, the murder was committed on Monday late at night. Or else on Tuesday morning or afternoon, probably Monday night. Do any of you remember anything out of the way? You know, screams, sounds of fighting. A struggle. Monday night? No, just the thunder. My, that was a storm. Do you? Mrs. Hammond? Mrs. Hammond? No, I don't. Just the thunder. Well, if you think of anything at all, doesn't matter. How insignificant. When one thinks of Lucio Fulci, the godfather of Gore himself, you often think of slow marauding zombies, Lovecraftian layers of enigma and darkness, and disgustingly wretched displays of gore and violence. You certainly don't expect flamboyant fashions, acid-trippy visuals, and Freudian levels of subtext. Lizard in a Woman's Skin is an example of Lucio Fulci's dabbling in giallo films, which is admittedly his own favourite phase in his filmography. He'd started with 1969's One on Top of the Other, or Perversion Story as it's sometimes known, and he had other entries too, like 1977's The Psychic and 1972's Don't Torture a Duckling, which we've already covered before on Nasty Pasty. Unlike Don't Torture a Duckling, which was quite downbeat and muted for a giallo, Lizard in a Woman's Skin takes the expected tropes and catapults them into overdrive, with juicy bursts of prismatic colours, the reddest of herrings, fur coats, lavish orgies, hallucinogenic drugs, trippy camera work, and of course, bizarre murders. The film starts with a suitably phantasmagoric sequence of Carol's dream, where she's struggling to find a carriage on a train, 
which then inexplicably becomes full of naked people writhing around. She then reunites with a familiar woman and embraces her as their clothes dramatically fall off. It's certainly more flamboyant than you'd expect from Fulci, especially with Carol's fur coat, which legitimately feels like you're tripping on acid watching it continuously ruffle in the wind. This dreamlike stance carries through for most of the film, even in the scenes based in the real world of London. Julia's murder scene is set up almost like a surrealist painting, with the stormy weather and opulent surroundings being quite a glamorous precursor to something that you'd expect from Dario Argento's Suspiria many years afterwards. Carol's situation descends quite rapidly, like something out of a Franz Kafka novel, where she's arrested quickly based on the nightmarish evidence all around her that she's the killer. Of course, this nightmarish imagery doesn't just stop here, with a particularly gruesome sequence of Carol wandering into a hospital room with still-breathing, dissected dogs hung up with their pulsating innards spilling forth. She's even chased by the nasty Hubert in another scene, led to her location by an accidentally triggered church organ dirge and a colony of screeching bats. Surely a situation that would feel more in place in the realm of disturbed sleep. The fact that Carol seems to inhabit these two separate worlds of reality and dreams is also mirrored somewhat in her relationship to the mysterious Julia. The stark contrast of Julia's orgy party and Carol's evening meal is executed perfectly. There's vivid reds, golds and a rainbow of hues in Julia's apartment compared with the muted whites, blues and greys of Carol's. Every guest at Julia's is wearing revealing clothing, or none at all, while Carol's dress is quite conservative, darker in colour, and the men wear formal suits. Carol and her guests eat their meal in silence, while Julia's party is raucous with laughter and fun. This then proceeds further as Julia ends up dead, whilst Carol is still living, permanently altering the dichotomy to the extreme. Even the camera work is incredibly unstable and wobbly after Carol learns of Julia's death at the dinner table, in complete contrast to the previous stability of the previous scenes. Of course, by the end of the film, we realise that there's more to this dual life than previously thought, as Carol truly desires everything that Julia is. Free from any familial commitments, a free agent in regards to her sexuality, a carefree spirit open to spiritual and hallucinogenic experiences, and confident enough to test bringing down supposed ideas of decency and morality. Unfortunately, the latter element begins Julia's downfall, as Carol is not willing to let her carnal relations with Julia become public knowledge, presumably due to the one stable thing in her life being suddenly taken away from her. The irony is, of course, that her supposed established moral life was pretty much a sham. Her husband Frank cheats on her, she's allowed precious little time to socialise with friends, and she's frequently abandoned by her family in favour of their own lives. Julia, in essence, represented a way out of that existence, one that she purposely destroyed from a false sense of threatened safety to her way of life. Another point of irony, however, is that after the murder, Carol notices the two hippies, Hubert and Jenny, are present, but unaware that they're high on acid and unable to comprehend what they've seen. Her subsequent action of fabricating her bizarro dreams ultimately led to her introducing Joan to the hippies, leading to Joan's murder and subsequent unravelling of her alibi. Had she simply ignored this point, it probably would have been eventually revealed that Jenny and Hubert were present, and due to their love of blades and drugs, Carol would most likely have escaped justice. Julia's eccentric drug fueled lifestyle, however, seems to have caught Carol out from beyond the grave, so it's rather poetic that a couple of trippy free spirits have led to her cover being blown. 
Fulci's film also features lots of symbolism, almost inevitable really when dealing with dreams as a subject. Carol's recurring dream features a train which she tries to find somewhere to settle, failing every time. It's almost representative of her life, trying to find a natural place to feel like where she belongs, as the train hurdles ceaselessly towards an inevitable end of the line. In another image, she looks on in horror as all the men in her life sit decaying at a dinner table, mutilated and wrinkled in equal fashion. In a grim repeat of her dinner party the night before, it's almost saying that this is her life forever if she doesn't change course, doomed to rot away unhappily with the rest of her family. The next tableau shows a similarly decaying girl with her abdomen split open and her innards in her hand. Quite literally spilling her guts, it may represent Carol's inner desire to reveal the truth about her affair with Julia and her subsequent murder of the girl. Even the paintings in Carol's apartment are very symbolic, such as when Carol awakens from the opening dream sequence, there's a swan painting behind her which is very sexually suggestive in shape and connotation, with the same bird even appearing in another of her dream sequences. There's also many examples of British painter Francis Bacon, whose images are frequently evocative of inner turmoil, suffering and disturbed thought. Most of his work features frames or cage-like contraptions, with a lot of the tormented subjects looking distinctly imprisoned. The subjects themselves often look in pain, about to scream or otherwise moan in sorrow, which are continually recurring themes of Bacon's work. This was mostly due to Bacon's life, which was domineered by a controlling callous father and guilt from his early homosexual illicit trysts. By the same token, Carol is almost going through a similar process herself, with her burgeoning lesbian desires for Julia held at bay by her stiff upper-lipped father and expected stale marriage with her husband. The feeling of entrapment and inner turmoil unable to be expressed and darkened thoughts are all similarly relevant to Carol's immediate situation, the grotesque vision of the four dismembered dogs also bears some symbolism, hearkening to the Hindu deity Dattatreya, who has four dog companions who all represent one of the intangible forces that's inside the human body. It can also refer, more relevantly, to the infamous four-dog defence, which is a technique devised by the guilty to delay their guilt from being discovered. In the example, a dog owner's pet bites another person and is indicted but instead of taking responsibility, he first says that he does not have a dog. Then he does have a dog, but it doesn't bite, after which he admits his dog does indeed bite, but it didn't attack the victim. Finally, he admits he has a bitey dog who sunk his teeth into the victim, but the victim must have provoked it. By filibustering to the nth degree, it buys precious time for an accused person to wiggle out of justice, though in most individual cases, it often fails to work. Carol's plight is strikingly similar, as it's actually quite a clean-cut case, as her possessions are near the dead body and her fingerprints are on the murder weapon, but she concocts her well-executed defence of insanity by means of a dream journal. It's rather macabre, then, that the symbolism that's evident in her dreams was simply plucked consciously by her by scanning the paintings in her apartment. If ever there was an unreliable narrator in these flicks, it's Carol. For a Giallo fan, however, it's actually quite refreshing when the protagonist actually turns out to be the killer, as it's often proffered as a red herring in these scenarios, but it's incredibly rare that this pans out as anything other than a cheap distraction. While Carol is in fact a cunning murderer and a convincing victim in equal measure, she's nonetheless a multifaceted and interesting protagonist to be behind. Julia, by contrast, is quite the mystery, with little dialogue and not much background on her to sift through. 
It's interesting how, in spite of this, she still feels like a major character due to the large amounts of information we absorb from her few on-screen appearances. Frank is ultimately a cheater, so he doesn't win points on that front, but he still remains staunchly defensive of his wife, even when the evidence is near incontrovertible. While Edmund means well and actually manages to get his daughter released on bail, there's a hint or two that his strict parenting style and focus on his business has led to Carol's development as a manipulative and deceptive woman. Notably, Edmund kills himself when he realises that his daughter is in fact the true killer, though it's likely the knowledge that she did so whilst completely in control of her actions is the thing that tipped him over the razor edge. Joan is rather respectful of her stepmother, in sharp contrast to the usual expected trope of the bitter stepdaughter. They actually have quite a good relationship with each other, until she's killed by Hubert for revealing that her mother saw them at the crime scene in her dreams. Hubert himself seems to alternate between being a nasty piece of work and a brainless half-wit, while Jenny is almost entirely incidental. It's almost like the whole cast of characters are subjects in a surrealist painting, all quirky and bizarre with moments of seriousness and sobriety in amongst the madness of the film's downward spiral. It feels a bit Twin Peaks-like as well, really, with an almost deistic focus on Julia's murder at the expense of others, which feels much more distant and incidental. Laura Palmer, eat your heart out. I'm putting this down, though, to the fact that the story of Lizard in a Woman's Skin is told through the perspective of Carol's eyes anyway, who we know by the end of the film is extremely unreliable as a narrator. Apart from the quite deep symbolism, zany characters and unconventional plot, a great strength of the film comes from its imagery. The dream sequences are beautifully composed, with Carol and Julia's reunion draped in red velvet and luxurious scatter cushions being a memorable highlight. The murder sequence is also stunningly shot, with an Argento-like flair and flamboyance that would be perfected in his later works like Deep Red, Suspiria and Inferno. The quite unsettling view of Hubert and Jenny staring at Carol from the balcony is also quite an image that remains on the retina for quite a while, as is the gruesome vivisection of the dogs, which does look admittedly a little shaky by today's standards, but I can imagine this scene getting a lot of flack back in the day. In fact, Fulci was accused of actual animal cruelty for this sequence, and he was indicted, forcing the special effects man Carlo Rambaldi to produce the fake prop dogs in court to acquit him of the charges. Separate from this bloody sequence, there's also Julia's stabbing, which is as gory as it is grandiose, and it's rather sexualised too. Fulci chose to focus the violence on Julia's breasts, adding another layer of meaning to Carol's actions, wishing to destroy the very feminine features that she desires so much. There's also Hubert's attack on Carol later, where she receives a pretty nasty gash to the arm. But other than that, this film lacks little murderousness to speak of. The focus on Julia's killer rather likens this giallo to Lamberto Barva's Macabre, where a single event generates most of the film's mystery, with any of the deaths being quite throwaway and unimportant to the main narrative. Though this makes the film a little unconventional by strict giallo standards, Fulci really pulled a great one out of the hat regardless, and I'd go so far as to say that this is essential viewing for giallo lovers. The mayhem in this film is so intertwined with somnolent trippiness, gaudy splashes of colour and bloodshed, all mixed in with a David Lynch slash Dario Argento air of mystique, that you'd be utterly loony to miss this one out. Main Mistress Carol was played by Brazilian actress Florinda Balkan, whom we've encountered many times before on The Damned, Don't Torture a Duckling, Flavia the Heretic and Last House on the Beach. 
Husband Frank was played by the gorgeous French actor Jean Sorel, whom we encountered before when we watched Short Night of the Glass Dolls, where I remember that he sported a moustache, which I'm sure we all like, eh? The frankly stunningly beautiful Julia was played by Swedish actress Anita Strindberg, whom we saw briefly in the Polizioteschi film Almost Human, but she's been in other giallo fare as well, like Case of the Scorpion's Tail in the same year. Stanley Baker played the role of Inspector Corvin, who was actually a Welsh actor who was in a whole host of films like 1961's Guns of Navarone and 1964's Zulu. The little scene Deborah, whom Frank was doing the horizontal mambo with, was played by Sylvia Monti, who reappeared in the Jello world in 1971's The Fifth Chord, opposite Franco Nero. Sergeant Brandon, another of the policemen in the film, was played by Argentinian Alberto de Mendoza, who'd been in a few similar films himself, like The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward and Case of the Scorpion's Tail, both in the same year from director Sergio Martino. Penny Brown, who played Jenny, would later appear in Ruggiero Deodato's pseudo-cannibal jungle gore-fest Cut and Run, which we've also covered before, and also Warriors of the Year 2072, whilst Ellie Galliani, who played the young Joan, later popped up in 1976's Emmanuel in Bangkok. Finally, Carol's therapist, Dr. Kerr, was played by George Regal, who you might remember as the killer from Case of the Bloody Iris, which we covered a few months ago. He also cropped up in All the Colours of the Dark and Death Walks on High Heels. We've covered director Lucio Fulci so much on this show that he could almost have his own section. Fulci also wrote the film with Roberto Gianviti, who worked on Five Women for the Killer, Don't Torture a Duckling, Seven Bloodstained Orchids, The Psychic and Murder Rock. Andre Tranche was another of the writers and he notably collaborated on the other film this week as well, Iguana of the Tongue of Fire. And there was also Ottavio Gemma, who worked on the 1977 exploitation film Hitchhike. The film also had quite a bunch of producers, one of whom was Edmondo Amati, who produced Warriors of the Year 2072, Atlantis Interceptors, and the video nasty The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. Another, Renato Giboni, would return to produce Fulci's Don't Torture a Duckling, while Jose Frade also produced other gialli, like Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion and Cold Eyes of Fear. Giallo regular Onio Marconi did the film's psychedelic soundtrack, while other Fulci regulars, Luigi Cavalia and Vincenzo Tomasi, did the film's cinematography and editing respectively. The editing was also accomplished with Giorgio Serralonga in tow, whom we encountered before on Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Carlo Rambaldi, the famous guy who brought us E.T. and the sex octopus from Video Nasty Possession, worked on Lizard in a Woman's Skin, but we know who he is having seen his work ourselves in Blood for Dracula. Lastly, another familiar face on the special effects team is Carlo De Marchis, whom whose seminal work we'd seen in the Spanish creature feature Slugs. The film was released in 1971, and while it received the same sort of disparaging remarks that Fulci was used to, it has today become a lot more well-appreciated by Fulci fans. It's still quite underrated as Fulci's work goes, so it's nice to see that it's finally getting the recognition that it deserves. It was released uncut in the UK when it opened in cinemas in 1973, where it received an X rating. A subsequent version on VHS was released 10 years later in the midst of the Video Nasty Ferrari in 1983, so it was another of the Fulci pictures that was floating around during the kerfuffle. It got an uncut release in the cinemas though, so a prosecution would have been unlikely, if not impossible. 
Still, it has all the ingredients of a video nasty. It was released by Video Independent Productions, who released the video nasty Anthropophagus, and it does have both sexualized violence and simulated animal cruelty. While the latter might not be such a big deal because it's fake, we do have to remember that the slasher film Madhouse was successfully prosecuted for having a simulated act of violence against a dog, so it's not outside the realms of possibility. As is usually the case, however, the VHS disappeared after hell had boiled over and the film was subsequently missing in the country for a whopping 25 years, when an uncut copy finally passed for a DVD release from Optimum in 2010. It's now available in this format for us Brits to see, but that lavish Blu-ray has yet to materialise. I do have every confidence, though, that it will one day. So that was Fulci's Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Let's scurry along to our other reptilian-themed jello flick of the week, the iguana with the tongue of fire. A woman smokes in her living room, unaware that a hand is slowly opening her apartment front door, the intruder sneaking inside. Going to her bedroom, the woman tries to dial someone, only to find her phone line severed, just as the lights go out. As she goes to leave, the intruder, who wears sunglasses and whom she recognises, kills her by dousing her face in acid before slitting her throat open with a razor. Sometime later, the Sobieskis, a rich Swiss family, leave their embassy in Ireland about to be picked up by their chauffeur Mandel, when their young son Bernard discovers the young lady's corpse in the trunk of their car. Going inside to phone the police, Mrs Sobieski is surprised to see her husband, the ambassador, returned home unexpectedly. He takes the phone and informs them to take it up with the embassy as it's now their responsibility to handle the matter. A Dr Johnson called to the scene explains that the body is virtually unrecognisable. 
A policeman named Lawrence receives information about the girl's identity, namely that she was Dutch, which links her to the ambassador. Lawrence is unconfident, however, as he has diplomatic immunity, but he questions Sobieski anyway, failing to glean anything other than he believes it to be an attempted scandal. Deciding to question the staff of the embassy, they begin with Maggie, the governess, and then Mandel, who fails to do anything except raise suspicion about an errand he had at the laundry. Back at the embassy, a strange moustached man eavesdrops on Sobieski's conversations and checks on the activities involving Mrs Sobieski's son Mark. In a lounge in the town, young Helen Sobieski is listening to a piano player and performer, watched by the eyes of Dr Johnson and a mysterious man. The performer goes backstage, meeting up with Sobieski, who's dressed in sunglasses, who offers her money for an undisclosed reason. Soon after Helen leaves the bar for a moment, the performer is found dead in her dressing room with her throat slashed. As Helen leaves to find her date, Walter, who's taken some of her money, she encounters the mysterious man who identifies himself as John Norton. Escorting her home on his motorcycle, Helen invites him into the embassy for a drink, unaware that the strange moustached man is still poking around. Helen invites John into her bedroom, where they make love, while the chauffeur Mandel leaves the house for the evening. The next day, Mandel collects some money from a man, returning it to Mark, who's waiting in a car. While at home, Norton entertains the notions of his mother, who believes the killer is the ambassador's son after looking at the paper's clippings. Norton sneaks back to the first victim's apartment to check it out, finding a burnt scrap of a photograph, just before he's attacked by the two figures also in the room. Discovering that it's one of the strange men lurking around, John is arrested and taken to Inspector Lawrence, who identifies him as a fellow police officer, once disgraced and dismissed by assaulting a suspect who then killed himself whilst in custody. When Lawrence assures that he trusts his wildcard, Norton visits Dr Johnson for stitches on the wound sustained in the attack. Visiting the embassy again, he first encounters Walter, who recognises him as a cop, and afterwards Mrs Sobieski, who is rather eccentrically bemoaning her loneliness, as well as mentioning that Helen and Mark are from her first marriage, with only Bernard being her child with her current husband. In the public baths, Walter and Mark discuss their plans for the evening, while the moustached man seems despondent that his plans are being abandoned by everyone. Sobieski soon returns home and has an argument with his wife, threatening to break her neck, after which Helen and Norton goes for a walk, where he reveals that her father had affairs with the two women who are now dead. They're spied on by the moustached man, who then soon turns up murdered in his car with a burned face, and a note warning against curious people. Soon afterwards, Norton receives a similar note, offering to reveal some truth about Helen if he goes to her house. He explores and finds a darkened room, with an unknown person also in the house with him. As he opens the curtains, Walter's dead body, swathed in countless flowers, is revealed on the bed, with a golden lighter belonging to Mrs Sobieski nearby. Returning home, Norton discusses the case with his mother again, who now believes it to be the young Bernard only for the pair and Norton's daughter to discover their family cat inside the fridge, brutally mutilated. Travelling to Switzerland to visit Helen, Norton arrives in time to see Sobieski crash his bobsled in the snow. Getting to talk with Sobieski afterwards, who still refuses to say anything about the murders, Norton informs him that his sled was sabotaged on purpose. He also goes to Helen and reveals about Walter's body in her house, though she denies renting the house at all. After the whole family returns to Ireland, Norton soon receives word that Mrs Sobieski has tried to kill herself back at home, 
while Mandel meets up with Norton in a bar, explaining that he's been conspiring with Mark to get his deserved paycheck after Sobieski refused to pay his notice period. In hospital, Mrs. Sobieski reveals that she did not try to kill herself, but someone tried to kill her and failed, after which Norton is called by Mandel, who explained that he walked in on Mrs. Sobieski's attempted murder and saw the killer for himself. Just as he's about to reveal the killer's identity, Mandel is doused in acid by the killer and has his throat slashed. Helen goes to visit Norton's house, but leaves shortly afterwards when John isn't there, while Norton fails to get a hold of Mark. On her way out, Helen is nearly run over by a car, which then dashes acid out of the window, narrowly missing her. She's then pursued through the streets by the razor-wielding maniac, being forced to jump onto a rising drawbridge to escape. She cannot maintain her grip, however, and plunges into the river, being rescued later by some coastmen. Later that night, the doorbell rings at the Norton house, and John's mother opens the door, to whom she believes is Helen, but she fails to wear her glasses. The visitor, seemingly red-haired and holding a handbag, makes themselves at home before wandering into the bedroom of Norton's daughter, suddenly grabbing her and trying to murder her. When John's mother tries to intervene, she is thrown against the wall and has her head repeatedly bashed into a bed and sink. Norton now arrives home as the attack happens and saves his family from the attacker, who is revealed to be not a lady at all, but Mark dressed in drag. Fighting him off, Norton receives several slash wounds from Mark's razor before he bashes his attacker's head into a clothes iron. Fearing another attack, Mark jumps from the window and plunges horrifically through a car window, killing him instantly. Several days later, Sobieski meets with Norton and Lawrence, explaining that Mark was the black sheep of the family, who bore intense hatred towards them, killing anyone he thought was beautiful or successful. As Sobieski leaves on a boat... Norton reveals that he knows Sobieski was the one who killed the first victim, which triggered Mark's subsequent attacks. Asked by Lawrence why he hasn't actioned this, Norton reveals with glee that the police at his next destination have been informed, where his diplomatic immunity will be void. I'm sorry to trouble you, Mr Ambassador, but I find myself in a particularly embarrassing position. I quite understand. And I'm going to collaborate with the police. Naturally, I expect this investigation to be carried out with the utmost discretion. Yes, Mr. Ambassador, there's a question I should like to ask you. Did you know that woman? Which woman? I meant the one, the one that was in... Oh, the one who was in the luggage boot of my car. Well, I might tell you, Inspector, after one glance and... Uh... Quite frankly, I didn't feel like taking a second one. The lady seemed to me utterly unrecognisable. Because of that, do you think the man who killed her... Or woman? What makes you think the murderer might be a woman? Yeah, well, why not? It's just a thought. After all, uh, as far as I can see, there's no evidence one way or the other. You spoke of the man who committed the murder. I, uh, I simply suggested it might have been a woman. Why? Isn't it possible? Certainly. It is possible. The use of vitriol does suggest a woman's hand, or a coloured person's. They are experts at such things. I'm grateful for your suggestion. Don't rely too much on the words of a diplomat, Inspector. Remember, we're all professional liars. Oh, we may do it with a certain amount of style and elegance, but uh, we're still liars. So we have no idea who might have put that corpse in your car, or why? No. No, I haven't the faintest idea. 
However, if it's any use to you, I might suggest that this could be an attempt to create a big scandal, which would uh, compromise relations between our two countries, which right now happen to be excellent. Yes, I suppose so. Your most kind, Your Excellency. I don't know how to... Uh... Oh, not at all. It's my duty to collaborate with the authorities of the country of which I'm a guest. It's a matter of uh, courtesy. Hmm? Would you allow me to question some members of the embassy staff? Yes, of course. But not here. Uh, call into the police station, will you? Released in the same year as Fulci's extravagant trippy vision, the Iguana with the Tongue of Fire is an entirely different beast in a lot of ways. While LSD, London and lesbianism were the codes of the day in Lizard, Iguana shuns the colourful parade of glossy apartments and psychedelic visuals for a much more muted affair in the muggy plains of Ireland, with a brief sojourn to Switzerland. Constant depressing rains, diplomatic affairs and intrigue, and an unhealthy fascination with vitriol and razor blades, Iguana is a much more traditional Jello experience that trades a few of the more lively aspects of the genre for a few sequences of downright nastiness and viciousness. That's not to say that the approach is wholly successful, but there's generally a more unpleasant vibe to Ricardo Freda's Jallo compared to other examples. It starts off quite typically, with an unnamed victim relaxing in her home before being attacked by an intruder. In true Giallo style, she recognises her killer before she's killed quite viciously with acid, dissolving her face before the killer takes a razor blade to her throat. It then becomes a little sideways of your usual Italian murder mystery as the action is revealed to be in Ireland, which is surely one of the only times the genre has explored this area. It also focuses mainly on the exploits of the family of Ambassador Sobieski, a Swiss diplomat who's brought his entire family to the Emerald Isle and has more of their fair share of secrets. While the situation offers a whole host of different character motivations like political intrigue and espionage, as it's a jallo, we get the usual people playing nooky when they shouldn't be, family arguments and rivalries, and generally outrageous behaviour from what is supposed to be mature adults. So while the players and setting might be different, there's no mistaking that this is a giallo through and through, with the expected black glove killer with an obscured face, open razor blade, red herrings, sexual shenanigans, and of course, a ludicrous explanation for the murders. The killer, wearing distinctive sunglasses, is the same figure from most other giallo, wearing black leather gloves, a long leather overcoat, and some facial obscuration that prevents them from being identified. Brandishing the signature razor blade is fairly old news, but Iguana spices things up a little by adding a small bottle of vitriol, quite an outdated term for any kind of sulfuric acid. The killer's preferred modus operandi is to dash this substance into the face of their victim, and while they reel back in pain, slice their throat open with the razor. It's particularly nasty and sadistic, though the effect is lessened by some of the quality of the special effects which range from being effective in some moments to flimsily shoddy in others. The Iguana with the Tongue of Fire is referenced directly in the film when Lawrence discusses the killer, comparing them to a dangerous creature hiding in plain sight with natural camouflage of appearing normal, while hiding their Tongue of Fire to lash out at any time, presumably referring to the caustic substance that they use. There's a particularly large amount of smunky red herrings dumped in this film as well, much more than the average anyway, which is almost impossible not to notice, as a musical cue and camera zoom are frequently employed to ensure that you don't miss any. It gets to a rather ridiculous level too, where virtually every character, incidental or not, seems to own a pair of the same bloody sunglasses. 
It then throws razor blades into the mix, with many characters inexplicably owning them, or even finding them, which does get tiresome upon realising that almost anyone can virtually be the killer at this point. Sobieski plays Nucky with several women, despite being married, and even resorts to paying some of them off because of how deep he's in with them. No pun intended. This behaviour seems to have trickled down into the rest of his family, notably in his daughter Helen, who casually picks up the handsome Norton, and Nye immediately screws the guy, despite being on a date with a completely different guy, Walter. The characters themselves are familiar already, with viewers well-versed in giallo tropes and conventions. Main player Norton is a man's man, thrown out of the police forces for abusing a suspect and leading him to commit suicide whilst in custody. Inspector Lawrence, however, feels that he's perfectly adequate to helm the murder investigation in an unofficial capacity, which is a pretty dumb move on most accounts. He's not altogether bad, however. Luigi Pastilli is charismatic enough to move the plot along, and while he's a father, there's none of the usual domestic issues like her feeling abandoned that arises in the film, seemingly indicating that he is actually a good father. His daughter is unfortunately a bit of a non-entity and has little to add to the plot, but the ending is still incredibly shocking when she's attacked by the killer in her bedroom whilst half-dressed. This is mostly because the actress looks so young and is in such a compromising position, while a similar thing also happens to Norton's mother. She has, in fact, been one of the film's highlights with a massively dozy attitude, a Mrs Slocum-like approach to addressing her cats, and for some bizarre reason, a belief that if she doesn't wear her glasses, she can't hear a single thing. While this is something I'd usually dismiss for being a character eccentricity, other characters seem to confirm it too, so I do wonder exactly what the deal is with that. She also has that rather cute insistence on working out who the killer is by simply looking at all the newspaper clippings. Like her granddaughter, however, she suffers a pretty shocking moment when the killer attacks her, bashing her head against a bedpost and then the edge of a sink. Never since Giulio Baruti's Killer Nun have I seen such an assault on the elderly, so it's quite brutal to watch, especially as her character is so innocently dotty. The seductress Helen is actually quite unimportant in the whole scheme of things, which is a bit disappointing as female characters in Jali are usually much more interesting than their male counterparts. She's certainly sexy, confident and has style, but she's rather removed from the plot somewhat other than a chase sequence where she bravely holds onto a drawbridge to escape the killer. Sobieski too is quite flippant about the whole situation erupting around him, even in one instance seeming to forget that there was even a murder on his property, responding with, which woman? Oh, the one that was in the luggage hood of my car, when being asked by the police. He is rather important though in the whole plot of the film, however, as his shady antics of bedding other women outside his marriage is the catalyst for all the problems in the film. He can't keep it in his pants, so the first victim of the film tries to do something about this, presumably going to rat him out after she fails to take a bribe. He in turn kills her using the acid in the face slash razor blade to the throat combo, though this is the only murder perpetrated by him. His ostracised son Mark notices this and proceeds to take advantage of the murder by trying to destabilise and rend the fabric of the Sobieski family, trying to set them all up as conniving murderers. If it were not for the ambassador's indiscretions, the murders might not have ever happened at all. As I've seen so many Jallo films, however, I pretty much deduce that Mark was the killer simply because he had the least attention on him, and he was the least likely to do it as a result. Mark's character rarely gets a look in considering the family is so adamant that he's bad news, and you only see glimpses of his activities here and there. 
With the whole thoroughfare of red herrings and suspects, he is well integrated at least, but not quite enough for yours truly not to notice. Mrs Sobieski is another very interesting presence in the film, as she's simultaneously swathed in fur and finery, as well as being a complete nutter. She rather reminds me of Carlo's mother in Argento's Deep Red, with a strangely prolonged laughter and almost intoxicated personality that makes it seem like she's hit the J&B whiskey a bit too much. Inspector Lawrence is also quite a silly character, who's probably not cut out for the police forces really, especially with an opinion which believes that the killer must be female or a coloured person in his words, simply because the murder weapon is a vial of vitriol. I mean, honestly, where did this guy get his credentials? Casual racism aside, he seems to also be completely oblivious to any warning signs. In one particularly jaw-dropping moment, he handles a piece of evidence which is a laundry receipt for somewhere named Swastika Laundry. I mean, it even has a bloody swastika on it. Why on earth would an Irish police inspector not find it a little disturbing that there is such a place? While the pick-and-mix variety of characters is what you'd expect from a film like this, none of them really stand out as wonderful characters, and there's a general air of unpleasantness about the whole affair. This also extends to the violent sequences of the film, which are kind of vicious really because of the killing method. Acid is always going to be much more visceral to watch splashed on someone, with a brutal throat slashing just rubbing salt into the proverbial wound. We only see this a couple of times on screen, however, and despite the visceral quality, it's just unfortunate that the effects are also quite clumsy and cheap-looking. The first one in particular grates quite a lot because of how cartoonish it looks. The victim's face is clearly a stop-motion puppet of some kind, whose skin merely wrinkles excruciatingly between the deadpan eyes. A moment later, and the actress's bloody face is shown. A bit of a leap in action, really. But then we get to the throat slashing, which actually unleashes a violent torrent of blood that seems to suggest that the victim either had critical blood pressure or the blood effect was just far too powerful to look realistic. The death inflicted on Mandel much later was much better realised as the blood flowed a lot more naturally. It's almost like the first death sequence was a not-so-dry run and the effect was improved later. Another squirm-inducing moment actually comes from Norton having sutures to stitch up an injury in his head, and the climax, as explained before, is also suitably graphic, ending in Mark's brutal splattering against a car window. The spirit is certainly there to be nasty, and it does achieve its objective, it's just there's a slight bit of rottenness coming with it. It's not all dinginess and clumsiness, however. Certain sequences are actually pretty nice and enjoyable to witness, like the fight Norton has in the first victim's apartment. The camera work is extremely frantic and it goes on for quite a while, allowing lots of enjoyable Italian-dubbed sounds of punches and groans. The scene of Helen, Walter and Norton relaxing in the bar is also quite classy and endearing to watch, which is part of the fun with Jally films after all. And even a sequence of Helen getting a lift home from Norton manages to have a certain mystique about it. The camera work is also pretty damn nice during the small scenes in Switzerland, as is the sequence of Norton and Helen walking by a cliffside, with some breathtaking views of cliffs, skyline and crashing waves. The former, however, is admittedly spoiled a bit due to some ham-fistedly inserted stock footage of bobsledding, but it's all in good fun, really. It's certainly not the worst jelly you can watch, and it does have quite a consistent bleak tone, interjected with moments of real viciousness and nastiness. There's enough elements of style and eccentricity to satisfy genre fans, and there's a smattering of blood to entice the gorehounds too. 
Don't expect a masterpiece, certainly, but you could absolutely do worse than this. The sultry Helen was portrayed by Czech actress Dagmar Lysander, who's quite recognisable from two of the prominent video nasties, House by the Cemetery and Werewolf Woman. She was also in Barva's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, Fulci's Black Cat, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion and Devilfish. Norton was played by Italian actor Luigi Pistilli, who started his career in spaghetti westerns like For a Few Dollars More and The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, before going into Italian gialli, such as Case of the Scorpion's Tail, The Video Nasty Bay of Blood, aka Bloodbath, Your Vices a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, and White Dress for Mariel. German actor Anton Diffring played the stern Sobieski, whom we've encountered before when we covered Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Austrian actor Werner Pockerth is also someone familiar to the show as well, as we spotted him no less than three times before, in Argento's Cat and Nine Tales, Ratman, and also Terror Express. Dominique Bosch, who played Sobieski's performer mistress, cropped in another handful of Giallo films, such as All the Colours of the Dark and Who Saw Her Die. The actor who played Mandel, Renato Romano, was also no stranger to the giallo, having appeared in The Fifth Chord, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and Seven Bloodstained Orchids, while Sergio Doria, who played Walter, appeared later in 1973's Death Smiles on a Murderer. The dotty Mrs. Sobieski was played by Valentina Cortese, whom you might recognise from Mario Barva's The Girl Who Knew Too Much, and finally, there was Irish actor Niall Toybin, who played the embassy's butler. He later popped up as a priest in 1986's Rawhead Rex. Director Ricardo Freda was not usually one to dabble in Jallo, only directing a handful in his lifetime, namely 1972's Tragic Ceremony and 1981's Murder Syndrome, which was his final film. Freda was reportedly very unhappy with the f- how the film turned out, preferring to use a pseudonym for its final release. He also wrote the film in tandem with a few others, namely Sandro Continenza, who worked on 1978's Inglorious Bastards, as well as the previously mentioned Andre Tranche from Lizard in a Woman's Skin. Stelvio Cipriani did the film's soundtrack, whom you might recognise from Joe D'Amato's Caribbean cannibal films that we covered, Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals and Black Orgasm. The cinematography was done by Silvano Ippoliti, who would later work on the equally grandiose and controversial Caligula, while the special effects were done by Lamberto Marini, who's also worked on another few films that we've covered, the Ridley Scott rip-off Alien Terror and the Wes Craven copy Last House on the Beach. Finally, Bruno Michelli assisted in the editing department, which he'd done on many films in the future, like Don't Torture a Duckling, White Fang, Emmanuel in Bangkok, The Psychic, Beyond the Darkness, The Bloodstained Shadow, Video Nasty Anthropophagus, Erotic Nights of the Living Dead, and Porno Holocaust. While the director was unhappy with the final product, that paled in comparison to the critics and audiences of Italy, which gave it an overwhelmingly cold reception. It performed quite poorly in the Italian cinemas, which really says something considering the giallo was in boom after the previous year's Bird with the Crystal Plumage. In fact, the film's reception was so poor that it even failed to get a VHS release in many parts of Europe, including the UK, where it was notably absent in both the theatres and on home video. During the nasty panic, the film was virtually unavailable, even on VHS format from other European territories, making it quite a rare find indeed. Time hasn't really been kind to the film either, with virtually no release in the UK at all. 
But there is some light at the end of the tunnel, as Arrow Video have secured a future release on DVD and Blu-ray with a brand new restoration, so it will be available soon. The BBFC passed the film uncut at Certificate 15 in January of 2019, with a reported release date of April of this year. So, Giallophiles, make a mental note. And that's the show for this week, chaps and chapettes. As ever, major thanks, handshakes and hugs to everyone who listens, and I'm always available for chatting on Twitter or Facebook if you want to hit me up for some general horror chatter or just about the films that I've covered or will be covering. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it all makes a big difference to me. As I've been so crap these past few weeks, though, there'll be a bonus episode coming out either later this week coming or the next weekend, covering Black Belly of the Tarantula, so stay tuned for that. And also, I haven't forgotten, but there's a competition that I'll be pushing out very soon with some prizes to be won, so keep your ears out for that. Next on our schedule, however, is Supernatural Girls, turning our eyes to young females who channel otherworldly spirits and demonic forces. We'll be covering the rather infamous William Friedkin's The Exorcist and another Fulci Cheese Fest, 1982's Manhattan Baby. Until the inevitable next episode of Jibber Jabber, take care of yourself, peeps, and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Ta-ta! Ta-ta!